I'm Rachel Bovard. I'm Josh Hammer. And I'm Elijah Shinsky. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCom Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So welcome back, everybody. Um, we have a slightly varied show today, but we are going to spend a lot of time talking about the biggest international news of the day, which is obviously Ukraine. Uh, so we're going to start there. Josh is going to give us an update. And then Emily and I are going to break down uh, some of the kind of cracks in the debate or or nuances of the debate that that I think we find interesting uh, here in the US. And then Ben's going to close us out, bringing us back to domestic politics to talk about how the deep state is still going after Trump. Uh, so with that, I'll kick it to Josh. Okay, so I think this is at least the third straight episode that we have dedicated large swaths of the program to the horrific crisis obviously happening in Eastern Europe right now. It obviously is the first time that the European continent has returned to kind of a full-scale state of war. Obviously not all of Europe, but it's kind of the first time that there was true kind of European on European violence, really kind of since the Second World War. One could argue, obviously, with what happened in Sarajevo and the Clinton administration in the 90s. But really going back to World War II, this is kind of the biggest conflict to date. Um, this obviously is not World War III and Putin is not Hitler, despite kind of the protestations of various kind of right liberal and left liberal blue checks on Twitter. But it is obviously a horrific crisis and we should not in any way kind of undermine that. The graphics is the graphics are obviously quite terrifying. We're talking here of um, upwards of over a million Ukrainians who have had to flee their homes at a pure kind of humanitarian refugee level. Um, it's 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 just quite terrible. Um, and the only person obviously to blame for that is Vladimir Putin. And, and we should just say that unambiguously, clearly, forthrightly, we should not make any attempt whatsoever to apologize for the fact that this ultimately is Vladimir Putin's humanitarian and refugee crisis. Um, as far as kind of an update on the actual facts on the ground, as of this time we're recording, it's um, it's obviously a very kind of kinetic and fluid situation. Um, the, the Russians have effectively been surrounded uh, Kiev or Kiev or whatever, however we're pronouncing it these days, they've, they've kind of been surrounding it for the better part of a week now. Um, they are kind of holding off and making kind of a full scale um, frontal assault on the city, but uh, that potentially could be coming. Um, certainly, uh, we've seen uh, the Russians bombed a maternity ward. Um, there have been kind of casualties there in kind of the southeastern part of Ukraine near the Sea of Azov. Uh, Kharkiv obviously has sustained kind of very heavy bombing, and a lot of these st stories that we're seeing obviously are, are are quite terrible. It's unclear as of right now when this thing will end. But I'll be very honest with you; I'm personally a little surprised actually that it has not already ended. As as of like a week and a half ago, I actually predicted that the pressure from the oligarchs would start to kind of dramatically skyrocket when the swift sanctions kicked in, when the oligarchs could no longer vacation in Greece and the Mediterranean, south of France, all that stuff. I personally thought that the internal pressure would really start to mount much quicker on Putin than it would. Obviously, with Visa and MasterCard kind of cutting off um, credit card banking services inside the country, the, the Russian economy just continues, obviously, to go further and further down. By the way, it raises the very obvious question. Now that we, now, now that we in a unified West have shown that we are capable of crippling like a top 15 economy, um, that's a pretty serious tool, guys. Um, and there probably are like most other geopolitical strategic actors that we might want to consider those sort of measures for at some point in the future. Uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, potentially China, obviously. Um, I, I, there's all sorts of questions here, obviously. I, I have lots of thoughts on kind of um, the virtue signaling performative aspect of what we're seeing from a lot of folks here. I don't want to kind of bury the lead too much. Um, we are going to get, get to that in future segments a little bit. But I, I, I'll kind of just say what's really kind of been the recurring thought in my mind for the better part of the past week or so, which is 
I am not the first person to make this analogy, but I really, really, really do worry that Ukraine is becoming the next COVID masking situation, where we are kind of we are a kind of a secular, godless country. Increasingly, here in the United States, people have a crisis of meaning. They are not going to houses of worship. They have they, they increasingly kind of have broken down families. They're childless. And for a certain kind of young, especially kind of millennial, kind of secular liberal type, you need a cause to rally around. I, I kind of go back to the same-sex marriage debates. I remember this, this essay from the Atlantic magazine, like 2013, 2014, where someone described kind of the march to same-sex marriage as like their generation's march to Selma. Like you kind of need your kind of your thing to like show that you care about the world. So whether it was same-sex marriage then or kind of the masking now or the Ukraine thing now. We're seeing this all over. I mean, here in downtown Miami, where I live, I got ratioed up the wazoo for a tweet the other night where I kind of took a photo of this skyscraper in Miami that was decked out in blue and yellow and just had all caps freedom. I, I mean, I'm not going to say this thing's a psyop. It is not a psyop, okay? Like there are people that there's a massive crisis and it's Putin's fault. So it's not a psyop. But I really, really, really do worry when kind of the groupthink herd mentality start to take on a life of its own here. And there obviously are all sorts of kind of vested financial interests in Ukraine with kind of the NGO complex there in the, in, in the aftermath of the 2014 Maidan revolution. So it's a very, very complex situation here. Um, and I, 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 don't, I don't really know where to kind of stop this rambling or kind of stop myself there. But um, thoughts on, on any of this? There are two quick threads I want to pull from from what you just said, and both deserve much more conversation than we have time for today. But um, the first is that, you know, what is happening in Ukraine? We just Congress just sent close to 15 billion dollars over to Ukraine. A lot of it for military purposes. We don't know how that's going to be received by Russia and what kind of provocation, if at, if any, that will be will provoke. But they did that without any debate, hardly any debate at all. And they did it on top of a massive one, you know, one trillion dollar omnibus bill to begin with. I just think that this is to the point that you've been making. This is a, a very serious situation that we're looking at. You know, this is the land war in Europe. This is nothing to be trifled with. And this should have been a very significant vote uh, for our current involvement. Uh, and Congress just blew it off and tacked it onto a domestic spending bill and pat, patted themselves on the back and got out of town. Um, so that's number one. But number two, it's interesting to me that you reference this idea that there are now corporations that can effectively deplatform a country. Um, you referenced it in the sense that maybe we should use it against China. I'm actually really worried about the domestic implications of what we're seeing. Um, I do think that this has international ramifications as well, because I highly doubt now that Russia is ever coming back to SWIFT. Why would they? Right. They don't have their head screwed on straight. <laughs> if they're going to come back to the system that kicked them out, they are going to ally with China. They're already doing that now. Um, and so just this broader idea that there are mega corporations that can cut off uh, with a whim by on a whim people's access to the market. This isn't, you know, cutting off combatants. This is cutting off non-combatants from access to the marketplace. And you, it's not just Visa and MasterCard. It was Apple Pay, Google Pay. You're seeing lawyer, big law pull out, you know, all these different corporations. I think that has really concerning ramifications for us here at home. Again, a much bigger topic that we could discuss at a different time, but one I think that's worth considering. And, and before we kick to Ben, I'll just add briefly a big picture thing to keep in mind is that we're now two years into COVID and the West had an opportunity to, to hold China accountable for the virus that escaped uh, from that country. And we, when we had an opportunity to understand the origins of it, we were mired in a debate about whether it was racist to talk about the obvious origins of it. And this may seem like a non sequitur. It isn't. 
um, when Vladimir Putin is considering an, an invasion of Ukraine, he's doing it in the broader picture of, of deep Western decadence and weakness. And I think that gets lost in this entire conversation. Like, I, I, do I think Biden's potential warmongering has been tempered by um, sort of populist uh, revolt to endless wars and to the foreign policy establishment? Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm glad that we haven't entertained uh, the no-fly zone. I'm glad that we don't have boots on the ground in Ukraine. And we may have in a different period, um, but but that doesn't dismiss the the utter decadence that grips the West right now, and uh, we we shouldn't for a moment lose sight of the fact that uh, Putin is is acting entirely on that. He's exploiting it strategically and intentionally, um, and that is a huge part of the belief system um, that is governing what he's doing. That the West is has has because of the failure of its foundational philosophy in their mind uh, really imploded. So I'll, I'll take a little bit of a different tact. Um, I, I agree with many of the points raised about the performative sort of virtue signaling. Um, I absolutely think the model that we're seeing applied to the Russians will be applied to uh, the January 6th deplorable portion of America. No question about that. So that ought to disturb us, obviously, because we're all going to be grouped in with the wrong thinkers and pursued uh, using the full power of the banking system and beyond. But I, when I evaluate the situation, the first place I go is energy. Energy is the lifeblood of Putin's regime. The fact that the Western world, and particularly Europe more so than the US, but the US also to a pretty significant degree, is so reliant on a country like Russia for energy speaks to a failing of globalism, first of all, and globalization particularly. And as well, let's also talk about the fact that basically the European countries plus the U.S. under Biden, have served as a non-deterrent effectively to Vladimir Putin. And I think the European countries, in part, demilitarizing because of the security umbrella that we provided them. Uh, and then also, when it comes to the lack of developing nuclear energy and beyond, of course, Russia backed many of the green movements in the West and put us in a situation which gets back to same analog, by the way, with communist China over the coronavirus, where we're reliant on communist China for everyday, all manner of everyday basic goods, but then in particular medicine. Same thing here. The Western world can't be reliant on a China or Russia for anything valuable, particularly, of course, energy. And I think the Biden administration, which at the best, I think you could say they've acted in sort of an improvisational and reactionary way, I think with no clarity whatsoever, except that basically our adversaries are gaining to a large extent. We're legitimizing them by talking about buying oil from Venezuela, a, a Russian partner Venezuela, as well as Iran post and Iran deal 2.0, but yet not unleashing American energy, I think speaks to just an utterly abominable administration policy. What we should be doing is trying to find a way to de-escalate this situation without acting in a completely weak and appeasing sort of manner. But frankly, where is the administration on what the end game is that it seeks, how it's going to pursue American interest in that end game? I think it's going to be China that's really going to be mediating at the end of the day. They've indicated as such. And that speaks to a huge loss of American power and prestige. And I do fear that as this situation continues to drone on, even though it's great, that the Ukrainians have heroically fought the Russians and resisted. I didn't necessarily think that they'd be so successful in countering them. Vladimir Putin will act in more and more aggressive and disastrous ways, absent an off-ramp that hopefully the U.S. could provide to prevent tens of thousands of incremental deaths. So let's stay on the Ukraine note and let's actually transition uh, right back to you, Ben. 
Uh, okay, so um, one oh, actually, thing- uh, hold on. I said sorry. Yeah, we'll have to edit that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think um, with that, we're actually going to keep talking about Ukraine um, and some elements of how it's being discussed here at home. So I'm going to kick it to Emily. Rachel, um, I want to talk about a poll that was released and uh, it, it found a majority of Democrats who were polled by Quinnipiac would say they would flee and not stay and fight if Russia invaded the United States. I'm reading these numbers right now. Overall, 55% of respondents say they would stay and fight, while 38% say they would leave the country. According to Quinnipiac, this is from Mediate, 7% say they don't know or say it's not applicable. 68% of Republicans would stay and fight, while 25% say they wouldn't, and 6% say they don't know or it's not applicable. 57% of independents would remain and fight, while 36% say otherwise, and 7% say they don't know or say it's not applicable. Okay, so it's not applicable because this is um, a, a quite a hypothetical, but it's applicable in the sense that we now have our Western media admiring the nationalism um, on display in Ukraine, whatever you think of this conflict. Um, there are people talking about the bravery and the, what Ukraine means to the people who have taken up arms to defend their homeland and their country and their people. Um, and this is from a media, by the way, that has talked down about nationalism, has cast it as, as racism and bigotry, et cetera, et cetera, um, for, for quite some time. So I think it's a, a very interesting glimpse. Um, it, this poll is, is quite an interesting glimpse into the state of nationalism here at home um, because uh, not to sound ridiculous, but it's, it's very true that we take our freedoms for granted, um, that we uh, take our, 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 I think clearly we've taken the world for the, the peace that we experience here at home for granted. Um, and we, I think, are detached from the love of country um, in this era where nationalism is derided as bigotry or um, as something that's outmoded. Um, and, and it's actually essential when you know, you're, you're not in times of peace. And I don't think we realize how fragile the peace that we experience here at home is. And watching America marvel at the, the bravery of Zelensky and of so many people in Ukraine, it's amazing because that bravery is, is inspired by and, and springs from nationalism. Um, you know, if you don't have a nation to fight for, if you don't love and care deeply about the nation, then why would you fight for it? And so I think obviously the partisan divide here is uh, telling, um, but, and, and I think it would not be nearly as steep um, in, in, or as stark a contrast in different eras of American history. Um, of course, there would be a little bit because Democrats you know, have the, the sort of pacifist um, inclination on their side, but that's not what this is about. This is about whether you love your country enough to stay and fight for it. Um, and I think we're really losing that. Um, and I think we're gonna be blindsided by how dangerous it is at some point. And this is a good reminder of that. It is kind of interesting. Um, I, do you guys, have you guys been following that MMA fighter uh, who was weirdly asked about Ukraine at his a press conference? Like who asks an MMA fighter what they think about Ukraine, but whatever, <laughs> that's a separate question. I can't actually remember his name, but his MMA name is Thug Nasty. <laughs> And he's from Arkansas. And I just found his answer incredibly illuminating because when he was asked, like, should we be fighting in Ukraine again? Why our press is asking an MMA fighter this? I don't know. But his answer was something along the lines of like, no, like, I feel terrible for what's happening over there, but I'm not going to go fight over there. But if someone comes here and someone comes to my 
town. I will dig my boots into the soil of Arkansas and I will fight to defend the things that I love. And that to me is, is just a quintessential American response in a lot of ways. Uh, but he has been just dragged over the coals uh, for, for saying something like that. I think uh, Adam Kinzinger, no less, <laughs> uh, you know, has basically Adam Kinzinger, who, as far as I know, has not deployed himself to Ukraine, uh, was was just saying, oh, braver people than this guy will fight, uh, you know, in Ukraine. And it, it's not to say that what's happening there again, we come back to this theme, isn't terrible and awful, but it, it comes back again to the point Emily is raising of nationalism, where you, you have to have this attachment to the things you hold dear. And yet we that sentiment has been so overtaken, but I think this liberal internationalism, where we are told to almost care more for the conflicts overseas than we do about the the conflicts you know that we face here at home, and it's not to say that again, it's not to give moral weight you know to something here versus there, or, or to to diminish somehow the suffering of others, but it's to recognize that this is that is what keeps countries afloat. Uh, is, is that idea. So I do think we are definitely at a, a war of, of sort of existential proportions, as Emily points out, between nationalism and again, this liberal internationalism, which would have, have a squash our own in favor of, its, of itself. So I, I, I guess when I hear the talk about nationalism, a couple of things come to mind for me. So to kind of take it back to first principles, if you will, to take it back to uh, Yoram Hazoni's book, The Virtue of Nationalism, talk about like what nationalism is, where nations come from and so forth. Um, the the nation the notion of a nation um, if I can speak properly the notion of a nation um, kind of going back to, really to the Bible and kind of the biblical origins of kind of the Hebrew Israelites who are kind of like the OG nation state in a sense if you will nations are formed from various tribes who kind of find that they have enough together and those tribes are kind of formed from various people who share a similar um, religious cultural background who kind of have similar customs folkways mannerisms basically just kind of a similar kind of heritage and a similar way of kind of viewing the world such that they can kind of come together and form kind of a cohesive political entity and that kind of becomes a tribe and the tribes kind of come together and form a nation I think it is an interesting historical question for a certain strand of interested uh, historian PhD, whether or not there is such thing historically as a genuinely distinct Ukrainian nation um, as a, a, in contrast to Russia. It's an interesting historical question. You, kind of, you, you could kind of ask the same thing about Belarus. You could, you could ask the same thing about kind of Georgia and some of these other kind of former Soviet satellite states. Obviously, the Ukrainian language is distinct from the Russian language. How distinct is it? How ethnically distinct are they? And so forth. It's an interesting academic question. But nonetheless, two things are true. One is, as a basic historical matter, um, as a matter of what my lawyer brain would refer to as kind of legal positivism, if you look at the actual maps, okay, Ukraine is literally a sovereign state. Okay, It has been that way since the, since the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991. Ukraine has been independent, basically full stop, period. And it, it is somewhat kind of... Uh, it, it's truly academic in like the most anodyne sense of the term. It's obviously barbaric in the worst sense of the term for someone to wage war upon kind of an alternative vision of Russian nationalism as encompassing Ukraine when the world has recognized Ukraine as being sovereign now for roughly 30 years, again, since the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991. So the, the historical question I think is interesting, but it's totally academic at best. And obviously um, it's resulting in a massive, massive humanitarian refugee crisis at worst. The other thing is that, again, from an American national interest perspective, I don't particularly care about whether or not Ukraine is like historically um, a, a, a true nation and kind of uh, the kind of the Yoram Hazoni kind of formulation of kind of uh, the common customs, folkways, ways of life, language, ethnicity, and so forth. 
it, it should be irrelevant to the American security national interest, whether or not this is the case. And we should obviously should temper our response accordingly. And to give the Biden administration kind of a modicum of credit, um, I, I think so far they have not done a terrible job of actually kind of responding accordingly. They obviously have not escalated when a lot of folks from the neocon right to the liberal internationals left have called for escalation. So uh, kind of going back to the poll numbers and uh, really devotion to and love of country, I sort of had the same response that Tucker Carlson did to the recent State of the Union address, which is the president spoke so glowing, glowingly and with such apparently real, genuine devotion to the cause of Ukrainian nationalism. And where do you see that when it comes to America? I mean, you see, I see restaurants sending around emails saying, support Ukraine, come buy this prefix meal. And I just look at it as so disingenuous, such a level of cost-free virtue signaling here, faux devotion, although for some people, I do think they genuinely are swept up in this cause, as Josh was speaking to earlier. This is, this is the new um, you know, religious sort of uh, devotion that they, that they're putting forth that provides them some deep meaning, and I, I say this, you know, in no way disparaging the fact that the Ukrainian nationalism that's on display is a very positive thing. I want Vladimir Putin and the Russian military to bleed here. I think that'd be a boon to America. It'd be a detriment to China's junior partner in a new axis that's formed between China, Russia, Iran. I hope they fail, and I hope they get no further in any quest to expand their territory into Europe. Um, but all that said, where is the love and the glory felt for America? You don't see that same kind of heartfelt outpouring. And it's not really surprising when you realize that the elite in this country subscribe to a notion of America as an evil, irredeemable, deplorable place. It doesn't surprise me that they look to other countries with love and affection, uh, but not the same at home. But again, I think among our betters who know better, this is a case of cost-free virtue signaling, and it's, it's kind of disgusting to watch. So on that note, my topic sort of follows up, uh, you know, and I'm interested in talking about it in a number of the contexts that we've raised. So this, this top, my topic, I'm actually pulling from last week, where I think Josh posed the question of, you know, does this conflict in Ukraine just mean the end of the restrainer debate? Like, are we back to the hawks, like dominating everything? And I was kind of I was not sanguine about it, right? I, I think my answer was like, yes, it's over. <laughs> the, uh, David Frum has won forever and and there's you know nothing else to talk about. And Emily was a little bit more, I think, optimistic about it and, and said, no, I, you know, I do think that there's still room for this. And a couple of no things I noticed that I think Emily might be right. And I wanted to talk about how people at home are handling this debate and kind of what it means. Yeah, Emily, don't get too excited that I said that you were right. Um, <laughs> uh, the first I is this. I'm so excited that my video went up. <laughs> the, so the first thing I want to talk about, sort of, again, how people are discussing this here at home, was a Rasmussen poll that asked a question, if a wider war breaks out in Europe, should the U.S. military be involved? All voters... so said yes at 49%, all, all voters polled, 49% of them said yes. But what was so interesting was of that 49%, how it broke down. And so by income, um, you saw the under $30,000 a year be the least represented in that yes. And the highest at 66%, right, of that 49% that said, yes, we should be involved was over $200,000 a year. So you see the sort of, you know, privileged and the rich the, I would probably say less, least likeliest to fight in this war, 
you know, very in favor of a, of the U.S. involvement in a European land war. Uh, well, you know, where they sort of lower income brackets, recognizing that they're probably the ones that would get dragged into it, say no. Now, compare this also with support for a no-fly zone. Um, so this was a tweet basically that that had a poll from the Economist and YouGov showing breaking down uh, support for a no-fly zone generationally, and you see a similar breakdown here with the 65 plus category, almost 60 percent supporting a no-fly zone, where 18 to 29 percent you only see 34 percent of support. And again, a no-fly zone, as I think everybody's probably aware at this point, but is essentially an act of war, right? So you're asking a question should we go to war in two different ways? And you're getting the sort of el- rich, older people saying yes. <laughs> and, you know, the young, uh, more lower income bracket saying no, I'm conflating these two polls. Um, but I, I, I'm kind of curious to open it to the group because this was the question we were sort of grappling with, I think last week was, you know, how will this break down, you know, in US support if this conflict is ongoing. And I bring it back to the point I was making earlier to, uh, I think in Josh's segment, where this is why, you know, when Congress just appends $15 billion in Ukraine funding to an omnibus and just pushes it out the door without any debate, I think there's a very uh, broad diversity of views in this country about how we should be handling this that should be reflected on on a debate in the floor of the House and the Senate that's not happening. Um, So I open it up for your all reflections on, on these numbers and kind of what you think. So my basic response to this is there, is there is a real generational divide, to say the obvious. I mean, like, and there has been since day one this entire conflict there. I mean, um, look, I, 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 I work at home, okay, in my home office here. I have Fox News on literally all day long, okay? Every so often I'll flip to, like, sports to, like, try and stay sane. But I have Fox News on the background basically all day long on both my TVs in my apartment. The Fox News programming, and I love Fox, obviously, has been targeted, I think, towards a 65 and up demographic throughout this entire conflict, with the obvious exception of Tucker Carlson, who is an obvious exception oftentimes when it comes to Fox News programming. But most of the programming on on Fox through this conflict, I think, has kind of been targeted towards or it's kind of been uh, in the direction of kind of a boomer con, a boomer conservative. Um, demographic, obviously, and this is a demographic that kind of came of political age when the Soviet Union was an existential threat to the United States, when we were when we were in a state of conflict with the Russians, when it was kind of your patriotic duty to kind of decry Russia and all things Russians and and, and so forth, right? But I mean, speaking personally, I mean, I was born in 1989. Okay, I, I'm writing my column on this this week. Actually, it's kind of this generational divide and the end of the unipolar moment and all that. But for our generation, who kind of grew up in a in effectively a post-Soviet world. We don't necessarily have this kind of deep intrinsic animus against all things Russia related. And that's not to say that Russia is a good actor, obviously. Okay. Again, Vladimir Putin is not a good actor. He poisons and murders his political enemies and many of America's um, closer and more loyal allies um, in that rough part of the world, whether it's kind of, you know, Central Eastern European countries, Poland, Hungary, so forth, obviously have many reasons to be fearful of Russia for historical reasons and indeed some current reasons as we're seeing unfold before our very eyes. But the notion that 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 Russia is the worst thing in the world and that we should be going to war and trying to kill Russians at all costs here, you really do hear this from kind of like an older generation of kind of um, conservative talking heads, commentators, pundits, 
Um, Mark Levin, who I generally am a huge fan of, I think kind of has, has kind of shifted in this direction or not shifted. He kind of is in that direction, right? Kind of over the past few weeks. Um, but Tucker obviously stands out as far as kind of the Fox program in particular here. But even on the right, there obviously is like a real generational divide here. And um, certainly for the younger generation of people, both left, right, and even center, we have grown up in an era where we have seen kind of the visceral decline, the visceral decay on the American home front, the offshoring of jobs, globalization, critical race theory, indoctrination, a grooming in the transgender ideology, all this stuff. These are terrible social maladies. And we have grown up with this and we have necessarily, I think, habituate ourselves to pay more attention to those, not this kind of phantom met Russian menace of a previous generation. So that's what you're seeing unfold here, I think. Yeah, and I think it's really big of Rachel to admit that I'm right. Um, and uh, it should be heartening for everyone to see Rachel uh, finally sort of come to. But uh, no, I think I, I want to follow that point that Josh just made, because uh, this generation is a generation that came of age in the shadow of 9-11, which was uh, precipitated and entirely the fault of people who did it, not in any way the fault of the United States, but um, the United States is sort of a global shadow uh, or a global uh, footprint um, certainly had an impact in uh, sort of stoking the, the dissatisfaction with the United States being at the forefront of global leadership um, that led a lot of people um, to radicalize against the United States and to bring that war to our shores, like literally to Manhattan um, in an instant. And that's a thing to remember uh, when we're talking about um, all of this is that like we're, I've said this a million times in the last couple of weeks, but we are less than a hundred years into the nuclear experiment. Um, this has played out in a shorter time span than some people's lifetimes. There are people who are alive right now who lived before the nuclear world order. Um, and we are very much in a process of adjusting to that. And it means for instance, that um, you know people who hate us in the Middle East, people who hate us in Russia, people who hate us in North Korea, they can do something about it at, you know, the, to speak sort of hyperbolically here, at the press of a button or metaphorically um, at the press of a button. So this stuff is like really new to humanity and um, the, the ability to fly a plane into a skyscraper is not something that was even conceivable a century before 9-11 because we didn't have skyscrapers like that and we didn't have commercial airplanes. Um, and so I, I do think there's a lot of disillusionment with um, the mistakes of American imperialism, um, which you know I, I think are deeply regrettable um, and uh, you know a, a national shame in some cases. Um, but I still think we're the greatest country that's that's ever existed, and we are uh, a net benefit to humanity. So both of those things can be true. But I think because those failures are so immediate to this this generation, uh, people that are closer to our age than uh, our parents and folks who lived through the Cold War. It's, it's more difficult to make that case, that pro-American nationalist case to those folks um, who, who grew up in the shadow of events like 9-11 um, and, and I think do take for granted the post-Cold War order um, because it's easy to take freedom for granted when you're at peace. So looking at the poll numbers, uh, I guess I'd say I'm not surprised that the people who are younger and who, as Emily noted, have grown up in the last 20 years of quagmire where we've spent vast amounts in almost unthinkable amounts in blood and treasure and really had little to show for it net net at the end of the day uh, I'm, I guess I'm not surprised that they are 
war wary and that the people who are more likely to have to deal with the consequences of engagements, whether it's spiraling oil prices and rampant inflation and the prices of all manner of basic goods, uh, or whether it's actually fighting in those wars are going to be more skeptical of them. Uh, on the other side of the coin, I do wonder uh, it, to what sort of conflict would they actually be behind? Because I think younger people are generally more idealistic. They, they, want, they say they want peace, although they're not necessarily willing to back the strength necessary to deter adversaries around the world. But to go back to the point that Josh made before, and this was actually my one of my initial reactions in watching this sort of widespread elite push to suddenly be the greatest backers of Ukraine in world history. Um, you, you know, what if there was such a swift push against China? Could we imagine everyone basically flying Taiwanese flags and wearing Taiwanese flag pins around the, an invasion by Xi Jinping? And scare, scarily, I mean, we may find that out within the next three years. But I do wonder, would there be the same reaction? And my suspicion is no. And that's because in reality, at core, and, and this is a lesson that I think has, has probably shattered um, the visions of a lot of people, at the end of the day, power speaks when it comes to foreign policy. Uh, in, the, in the Arab world, the strong course leads, and it's the same thing across the world as well. So for all the talk of you know, basically the values are back under the Biden administration, again, while it goes hat in hand to Iran and Venezuela for oil, and it has to come begging back to the Saudis after bashing Khashoggi and opposing the Saudis when it comes to Iran deal 2.0. At the end of the day, power talks, power is what speaks. And so I do wonder, would there be the same response in an analogous situation if it were China? I do hope that the American people are seeing with clarity what is international interest with respect to Russia versus Ukraine, but also thinking about down the road to the whatever happens with Ukraine, what is the next step when it comes to uh, deterring all manner of adversaries, including Russia, should it seek to spread its power more broadly? Well, with that, I think we have exhausted ourselves on the topic of Ukraine for today. Uh, so we'll pitch it back to Ben uh, for some look at some domestic politics. <laughs> So for something totally different, um, there, there was an article in Axios that caught my eye a few days ago. It was titled, Scoop, High-Powered Group Targets Trump Lawyers' Livelihoods. And I actually think that's a pretty accurate uh, description. Oftentimes, these titles are clickbait, but in this case, it's accurate. So this article goes on to describe basically a Democrat-backed dark money group that is targeting essentially all of the lawyers who are involved in election-related and post-election-related lawsuits on behalf of the Trump campaign. Many of those lawsuits of which, although the left spins it otherwise, were dismissed by judges not on the merits, of course, but on technical grounds, on grounds of standing and things like that. And the Supreme Court itself, I think, did the, the nation an utter disservice, which I think will have consequences in 2022, 2024, and beyond, when it failed to take clear-cut cases, uh, for example, from Pennsylvania, where you had non-legislators making law effectively when it comes to our elections, which is a disaster. Uh, so this article goes on to describe uh, sort of what the, the aims are here of this effort. And it says that the 65 project, it's called, for the 65 lawsuits that were effectively dismissed or actually dismissed, that the project aims to deter right-wing legal talent from signing on to any future GOP efforts to overturn elections, not Mark Elias trying to overturn elections, by the way, or Democrats trying to use all manner of lawfare to effectively impose policies that do undermine the integrity of elections. David Brock, of course, infamous uh, dirty trickster, Democrat, founder of Media Matters, Clinton ally, et cetera, 
what he says about it is is pretty remarkable and I think uh, really speaks to where the left is and also calls into question or begs the issue of, do they not fear any sort of deterrent from their political opponents? I think the answer is obviously not. Here's what Brock says about this project. And the project, bears noting, is going to put forth ads in all of these battleground states. Um, they're going to actually pursue cases against a number of these lawyers to try to get them disbarred. There's 100 plus lawyers. I think the literary fish are probably more vulnerable to what we're doing, Brock said. You're threatening their livelihood and you know they've got reputations in their local communities. Brock told Axios in this interview, the idea is to not only bring the grievances and the bar complaints, but shame them and make them toxic in their communities and in their, their firms. This is most important, mostly important for the deterrent effect that it can bring so that you can kill the pool of available legal talent going forward, according to a person involved with the effort who asked to remain anonymous. So this is what the left is doing. And the question is, is there anything comparable to this on the right, like fighting in the right way for the right things? I think the answer speaks to it for itself. The left, by the way, you'll recall, put together a list of Trump administration officials, literally a black list of Trump administration officials at the end of the Trump presidency to try to hound these people out of public life, stop them from being able to get jobs. Unknown, nameless, faceless figures otherwise, but they went and basically doxed them and tried to expose them. Uh, of course, they, they say it openly that this is about combating any lawfare, qualified lawfare on the right against the left's assaults on elections, which were massive leading up to the 2020 race. And so a couple questions that I'm left asking are, first of all, what percentage of Republican members of Congress oppose this effort? And then of those who oppose it, who will actively speak out against these sorts of measures as un-American, tyrannical measures? I think that answer speaks for itself. And another question is, Where's the comparable Republican effort, say, to go after Soros DAs uh, and to combat them with the same sort of gusto that the left does, except, again, on the merits and not trying to destroy these people in their communities and in their livelihoods? So I think that this is just this is a microcosm of the broader effort to, of course, destroy anyone associated with Trump, groups that are conservative, like the January 6th Select Committee is pursuing, but then the broader war and wrong thinking dissent in this country. But this is a particularly odious in your face, overt representation of it. And again, I ask, what are where are conservatives on this? Because this is what the other side is doing, fighting you, trying to kill you. And they're telling you that every single day. Where's the Republican side? If the Republican side is, oh, we don't want to put forth an agenda going into 2022, and the other side is saying, we want to kill you, I think that speaks to a chasm that is almost unbridgeable and almost definitionally means you're going to lose over the long term if the other side's fighting with everything they have and you're not even on the playing field. Um, so on that sort of dour note, I'm curious what your all take is on this story and, and the broader ramifications of it. Well, I think to answer your first or first premise or question, like, no, the right has been fully unprepared for this. Um, and I think that's pretty obvious. And 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 it, I think you're right to touch on Congress because where is the outrage? It's the same thing about the fact that, you know, the January 6th defendants are being treated like absolute garbage, almost in an extrajudicial way. And you've had minimal outcry about that. And I think that's to their to their shame, uh, to the members of Congress's shame. And I think here, too, as well, because this is the left's playbook is to not just sort of go after you politically, but to ruin your life, to remove you from your livelihood, to make you so socially ostracized that you want to change your name and move. But you know, we've seen this not only in the political space, but look at what happened to everyone who donated to the GoFundMe for the Canadian truckers, right? But we And we saw that playbook over and over and over again. So the right needs to get tough here. 
Uh, and, and I don't know necessarily what that looks like. Maybe it just means responding in kind. You know, there, it's interesting in the article that you sent, Cleta Mitchell, who works with uh, me here at CPI, has a, has a quote about Mark Elias, right? Saying Mark Elias has been tied to election irregularities, but why is no one calling him out? Because we don't do that. And it's like, we never want to lower ourselves, but this is, this is almost like blood an eye for an eye situation, right? You're, you're fighting to live in this country and, and, and also defining what it means to be a free country. So I don't know, maybe if other people have different views about the eye for an eye thing, I'm kind of curious. <laughs> I, I mean, I have like two thoughts that come immediately to mind here. We've, we've seen any number of stories now since kind of the, all the litigating in the aftermath of the 2020 election and, and the electoral college uh, controversies and all that. We've seen any number of efforts to uh, systemically or actively disbar attorneys in various states, New York State, um, the, the city of New York is kind of thing being uh, ground zero of that. Uh, if I recall, kind of the the city bar of New York I was trying to, to disbar a lot of people on these grounds here. So uh, it, it, it's really it should be quite jarring. It should be quite jarring for at least two reasons. One is a kind of like a theoretical level. Um, this is profoundly illiberal. OK, and and by the way, um, here on NACON, I think illiberal could be a good or maybe like a not so bad term, depending on how you phrase it. But I, I think it's worth at least noting the brutal dripping irony that these same people that are claiming about saving, quote unquote, my democracy or our democracy are seeking now to disbar people based on the perceived wretchedness, the perceived vileness of the clients they have chosen to represent. For an earlier generation of lefties, for an earlier generation of progressives, for, for like the ADL, the ACLU, the SPLC, this would have been completely anathema for the kind of folks that were that were defending. Obviously, I think think, think about the folks that were just that, that that were defending civil rights icons back at a time when that was completely ostracized. Back in time, back in the old Jim Crow South, and that was kind of a a fringe cause. So the tables have really turned now um, to an extent here, and it's just it's just truly truly ironic. Um, it also kind of reminds me just if, on, a, like, on like a note of personal privilege here, if I can just like tell like a little brief anecdote. So uh, obviously in the aftermath of 9-11 in particular, so many left-wing law firms, um, Jenner and Block would be a good example of a law firm, a Chicago-based law firm, if I recall, that kind of signed up for this. A lot of them kind of signed up to kind of virtue signal at the time by, by defending pro bono kind of Gitmo detainees. Um, I'm not sure how many in the audience remember this. This is like a big thing in like American big law and kind of like the early to mid 2000s. It was kind of a way of like sticking it to the man during the Bush administration, so to speak. I had this funny anecdote. I, it was my 12 year of law school, kind of around the time that my friends and I were kind of going through law firm interviews. And a very good friend of mine who I will spare the, uh, the you know, the embarrassment that will leave him nameless kind of comes up to the table and like we're talking about how Jenner and Block is doing this or was doing this. And out of nowhere, he just says in kind of his Texas accent, man, you know what, what Jenner and Block calls pro bono, Josh Hammer calls treason. And I was like, that's true. I do think it's treason here. But like, think like just from there to now, just how the tables have turned as far as trying to ostracize based on who you represent. It is profoundly illiberal and it's illiberal in the worst sense of the term. Um at the Federalist, we actually ran a story where we reached out to the folks, um, ACLU type folks who had who had defended Gitmo detainees and uh, asked them all for comment on uh, whether they would represent January 6th detainees. Um, and we're met with uh, deafening silence on, on that question, uh, which I thought was a very clever story. Um, I, I will say I agree that it's illiberal. I'm probably in minority here in that um, I'm, I don't sort of, 
I guess, I don't know. I think it's a tough question. Like I, I do think it is a liberal and I, I think the reason there isn't anything comparable on the right, although the left is very convinced that there is, um, that there is this vast right wing conspiracy that has been constructed to uh, hunt them and silence them and to destroy their careers um, because they've never sort of left the, they, there is uh, Senator McCarthy lurking around every corner for them. Um, but they are just like completely convinced this exists. I'm not sure that it actually does. Uh, but I think the reason you don't see anything uh, comparable on the right is because the that level of maybe a liberalism is not like it's it's just not the instinct it's not the conservative instinct to to go out and and start just like having this big infrastructure that ruins people's careers and and targets them and and shuts them down um and it's just a it seems so ugly to me um and it seems to be such a sign of how incapable we are of just functioning and performing the basic functions of a system Society. So I'm totally like kind of torn on this. My instinct is that um, I don't necessarily want to fight a liberalism or think it'll be most effective to fight a liberalism with a liberalism. I don't know if we're totally there yet, but maybe we are. Um, and so I'm open-minded on the question. And with that, I'll, I'll toss it back. Let me jump yeah, in and, and I, I can, yeah, no, I, I can kick us off for, for uh, our parting shots here. Um, and I'll put a capper on this last segment and then go back to Ukraine just very briefly. So one of the things that this, this Axios article points out is that it's not just trying to destroy these attorneys. They're also going to push the ABA and every state bar association to codify rules barring certain election challenges and adopt model language stating that, quote, fraudulent and malicious lawsuits to overturn legitimate election results violate the ethical duties lawyers must abide by. And you can bet that that ratchet is going to cut one way. It's guaranteed. So I would say this plus trying to disqualify, uh, quote unquote, insurrection supporters under the 14th Amendment. This shows you exactly, again, how the left is trying to shift the Overton window, that they're going to use this to try and railroad and destroy any opposition because elections are where all of their power, of course, lies. And this is one more way to, in the words of that Time article about the 2020 election, fortify elections going forward. Uh, jumping back to Ukraine, just to level set and make one 30,000 foot point. Uh, besides the fact that were we energy independent, uh, had we not supported uh, taking the sanctions off of Nord Stream 2, had Joe Biden actually himself served as a credible deterrent like Donald Trump, in my view, did, that we would not be in this situation, in my view, with the invasion of Ukraine. It's, it's just striking to me and jarring, frankly, that the administration has not articulated what what situation or what outcome would be in America's national interest? What is the administration willing to do to achieve it? How, first of all, will it insulate the American people from any of the consequences? And how do we stop this from escalating into potentially a nuclear exchange while not being weak and not encouraging still further misbehavior, still further mis further abhorrent behavior from the Putin regime? The fact that we don't have any of those questions publicly to me, especially given the miscommunication apparently with Poland and other allies and partners during this, just speaks to me that again, this is not only improvisational and reactionary, but that there's a lack of clarity privately as well as what we see publicly. And that's really disturbing as an American, regardless of what you think the right approach to this entire situation is. And from my perspective, I don't want us getting embroiled in anything escalatory whatsoever. It's disturbing to me that the commander in chief and his underlings appear to be MIA in this situation, but our adversaries themselves, it seems, are going to be empowered no matter what way it shakes out. It's a disturbing and sorry state of affairs, in my view. 
Well, we're open for final thoughts. I don't know if anyone else wants to jump in here. Yeah, I mean, I can just build off <clears throat> build off that a little bit here. So, I, I mean, I kind of teased in the very first segment, we haven't truly come back to it, that kind of this, this element of kind of the performative virtue signaling that we're seeing over and over and over again. Um, I, 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 I am at the point where I, I, I'm not gonna say I judge someone for putting the blue and yellow flag in their, in their profile, but it's really starting to kind of um, annoy me here. Um, and it's not because the cause is, is, is not just, okay? Innocent civilians do not deserve to be bombed. They, they, should, they should not have their ways of life upended, their livelihoods destroyed, et cetera, et cetera, because of Vladimir Putin's idiosyncratic thoughts and what may or may not be historically part of Russia. All That's obviously terrible here. but. It's just history repeating itself, guys. I mean, it is literally, you know, as, as Yogi Berra, the, the late great Yogi Berra once said, it is literally deja vu all over again. This is exactly what happened at the beginning of COVID. This is exactly how we got from 15 days to slow the spread to two years. And by the way, this very week, in fact, this day that we're recording this, I read an article in the Financial Times, where, and the Financial Times they said that in England, COVID-19 is apparently now less lethal than the influenza. Okay, let me say the end. COVID-19 is less lethal than the influenza. We just basically shut down the world for a large part of the past two years to fight a virus that in England now is less lethal and less contagious than the influenza. But it was, but we saw how this played out, okay? It was kind of, again, this kind of, this rise of this mentality of just trying to kind of virtue signal everyone, change their Facebook profile photos to put them in a mask. You know, we're all in this together, this kind of kumbaya mentality here. And we're seeing the same thing happen to Ukraine. And I, I really just worry about a society that is so lacking in bedrock values, that is so frankly insecure, that frankly just does not know what it stands for, that has so little spine, that just leaps from cause to cause to cause, trying to virtue signal, whether it's foreign policy, domestic policy, whatever. And it, it just does not say good things about kind of the integrity, frankly, of kind of the American nation state as presently constituted. And it kind of says that I think, um, I mean, we basically just need new things to care about. Um, but in theory, of course, the conservative answer would be the new things really should be the old things, obviously, religion, family, community, so forth here. But um, in any event, it's, it's a pretty sad state of affairs, I think. So I had I came here from recording a podcast with my colleague Chris Bedford, and one thing that we talked about uh, to Josh's point that I hadn't really thought of it exactly in these terms before was uh, you have this really toxic combination right now of um, in a mediocre elite class that was sort of uh, forged in the postmodern climate where truth is relative and their their intellectual foundation is built entirely on a house of sand instead of one that's built on a rock. And you combine that with the sort of Charles Murray uh, trend of coming apart. So you have groupthink and just really bad think. Um, and, and that combination is toxic. So like the, the combination of mediocrity and clusters of mediocrity in our, in our halls of power is so terrifying um, because they don't actually understand the arguments they're making. It's not rooted in virtue. It's not rooted in any coherent set of values except for the, the value that value is relative. Um, and, and if it's all relative, you're on the house of sand and our Western decision-making has been on a house of sand. It's why we're debating whether or not it's okay to say Wuhan virus. Um, while instead we've spent way more time on that sincerely than we did in those early days of discovering where it came from and, and understanding that better to hold potentially this major world power accountable 
um, and to understand what happened. And I, I do see something similar here, but the reason that we're mired in this shallow virtue think, um, and, and we're just such a deeply unserious uh, community as the West is because we are built on a house of, uh, utterly on a house of sand, um, an intellectual house of sand. And that that worldview is impervious to criticism because it's built on this idea that everybody else is a bigot um, and everybody else is a toothless rube. Um, and so it can't have iron sharpened iron. So it just keeps getting dumber and dumber and dumber as it gets more and more powerful. It's it's groupthink with intellectual rot, I think is, is really what it is. Mediocrity is just a kind kinder way of saying it. Um, but I think that kind of brings me back a little bit to the point I was sort of toying with in Ben's, Ben's segment, which is this idea, as Emily's pointed out, like th- these are not are really the sort of elite class that rules in America is not smart, right? It, it, they're 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 not like they're mediocre. She says mediocre. I say intellectually like depraved, right, <laughs> and just destructive. But the the right still treats these people as though we can just persuade them out of their bad habits and persuade them out of their bad decisions. Like we are still in a debating club, you know, and and whoever makes the better argument wins. And it's like, no, you know, and this is why I come back to this idea of it it really, I I really do think more and more that the left is not going to stop tyrannizing the right or just people who disagree with them until they themselves receive some of the same treatment. And it's a difficult thing for me to come to grips with because that's not how I was trained, right? (laughs) And it's not how many of us were raised, but it's this idea that people who are not open to argumentation only respond to strength. It's the idea with bullies, right? They're dumb anyway. And so you have to respond to a bully with strength. So what does that look like? And I think that's what the right has to figure out is having this, and this is a very generational divide on the right, by the way. I was having this debate um, with a couple of people who are sort of this old, the older generation of conservatives, you know, the respectable type of conservatives who were just horrified, uh, you know, that I would that I would put this out there. And they say, well, we do have to fight with one hand behind our back because that's what the founders intended. And it's like, well, OK, first of all, not really like George Washington uh, crossed the Delaware on Christmas Eve. OK, <laughs> he wasn't like standing on ceremony here. Um, but also, it's it's this idea that like, yes, we can maintain our self-righteous clinging to principles. We can hold on to the Federalist Papers as we're marched to the gulag, because then at least we'll have the Federalist Papers. And it's like, this to me is just not meant, you know, uh, not to throw the entire argument out. Like, I think it's, you know, this type of restraint and how we want to respond should be a debate. But at the same time, it, it it's this we cannot sit here and just continue to take it. Our way of life is being destroyed. And and the question for the modern right now is if we're going to stand up and fight back or not. Um, So that was a very sort of existential way to end this podcast. (laughs) Maybe we can pick it up next week. So what is wrong with you? I don't know. I don't know. Rachel Rachel says very existential. I heard just a profoundly based closing monologue as well. (laughs) Well, I need a drink. Yeah, okay. Uh, So on that note, um, uh, on behalf of Ben, Emily, and Josh, I'm Rachel Bovard, and this is NatCon Squad, and we'll see you next week.